We are going to be, um, as you know, we've already finished our series through the book of books of First and Second Thessalonians, uh, and this morning we're just going to do one a quick message, a short message. I was thinking about just um, boy, all of the things that are going on in the life of the church uh, this upcoming missions trip. Um, and for whatever reason, this was the passage that came to mind and for me, and I think it's applicable to all of us. Of course, all of God's word is applicable to all of us. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11 this morning. And uh, before we do that, I want to pray. Just ask that God would guide our time in his word. Lord, what a full worship service. Worship in song. Uh, worshiping you as we relate to one another and greet each other warmly and serve each other. We worship you, Lord, in uh, welcoming uh, Tim and, uh, our, and, and just being attentive to his ministry and uh, connecting with him uh, in, for uh, missions, particularly to Muslim people. Uh, God, we worship you through sending uh, some of our own to go to Ethiopia and serve there. We worship you, God, as we study your word. We will worship you as we do, as we give our tithes and offerings. And we will worship you as we participate in Lord's Supper together. Uh, what a full service. Uh, what a Sunday of worship. Guide us now in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I love a good argument. Uh, I don't mean I lo- like a fight, but I-, I love a good debate or a good, well-reasoned argument. Uh, I love courtroom dramas to see how uh, a lawyer might present their case and then substantiate it with compelling uh, evidence. Uh, I think the, um, the authors that I tend to enjoy write that way. They write with discipline and precision. That's why I like Dallas Willard. Uh, for some people, he's, it's, you know, his writing is like Novocaine. It's a, little, it's a little numbing. But it's very precise and very, very disciplined. It's why I like uh, some of C.S. Lewis's writings, although sometimes he gets carried away and I get bored and I can't hang with him. But I love a good, well-reasoned argument and I think it's one of the things that I really appreciate about the Apostle Paul's writing is, is that it's so logical and so precise. And when he, when he makes an assertion, he substantiates it with uh, very compelling evidence. And the passage that we're looking at today in Philippians 2 really puts Paul's argumentative style on display. Uh, Philippians 2, as many of you know, it's one of the most theologically challenging passages in the scriptures uh, because it deals, of course, with the Incarnation. Uh, Anytime you're trying to explain or show or demonstrate the simultaneous union of the deity and the humanity of Christ, uh, you're up against the challenge. And Paul is willing to weigh into this to show us the dual nature of Christ, fully God and fully man. The passage that we're looking at is known as the kenosis passage because of the Greek word that appears in verse 7. Uh, which is translated in in most of your Bibles as emptied himself or became nothing. And throughout history, the church has really struggled to understand how Jesus could be fully God, fully divine, and yet empty himself. How do you explain that? And so there's this sort of mystery about how he retains his deity while simultaneously emptying himself. Himself, But right there at that mystery, that point of difficulty and challenge that the church has struggled with over the years is the beauty of the passage. And that's what we're going to be 
looking at this morning. Um, Paul is writing this letter uh, to a church that he planted in Philippi. Uh, and actually, uh, the location uh, of Philippi is, is, is right, uh, it's the place that he ministered to right before coming into Thessalonica. So it's actually fairly close. Uh, it was a prominent city located in a similar place as Thessalonica, if you remember those maps, uh, kind of on that major trade route, the Ignatian Highway. And it was also a port city or very close to the sea. It was an affluent city, uh, rich with gold deposits, and there was actually uh, a medical school there where it's believed that Dr. Luke got his training. And so that's the city. Uh, And Paul actually planted a church there in AD 50, again, just prior to his heading into Thessalonica and beginning his ministry there. The occasion for this particular letter, we're just going to do this very quickly because we always want to read in context and understand what's going on. But the occasion for this particular letter, he's writing as 12 years after the birth of this church. And amazingly, he's writing this letter of encouragement to the church, and he's writing from prison. Think about it. Let your mind just accept that for a moment. This man's in prison, and he's writing to the free church to encourage them. Okay, so that's the reality of this. The Philippians were long-term supporters of the Apostle Paul's ministry, and they were beloved to him. Uh, And they had just sent him a gift by way of Epaphroditus, one of their congregants, and Epaphroditus had come and delivered this uh, to Paul while he was in prison, which was sort of the custom of the day. You didn't get, you know, three square meals and a cot and a walk in the yard when you were in prison. You depended upon your family and those who loved you to care for you and sustain you. And so this church who loved him sustained him in his time. Uh, in prison and brought him this gift. And so Paul is giving this letter to Epaphroditus to deliver back to the church. And overall, the purpose of his letter is basically to send the church an encouragement and to encourage them for joy and unity. Those are the broad themes throughout the book, to encourage them to be joyful and to have unity in their fellowship. And as I said earlier, it's, it's a, the passage we're looking at today is challenging it's beautiful, and it presents some of just a, a great snapshot of Paul's excellent argumentative style. So that's what I would give you by way of introduction. Let's look at the passage, Philippians 2.1. It's very familiar. In fact, Pastor Mark reminded me that he preached this just a couple years ago. And I said, I know, I've gotta, now I've got to come up and we've got to preach it right this time. <laughs> no, I, did. I didn't say that. <laughs> But the word of God, we continue to cycle through again and again, don't we? (laughs) Sorry, Mark. He'll get me back for that. You know he will. I'm going to be gone for three weeks. Philippians 2.1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. We're going to move quickly through this passage. The first broad stroke that I would lay out is this. Paul is letting us know, if, if you're a Christian... You will act like Christ. It's fairly simple, isn't it? To say. (laughs) Simple to say. 
Notice all of the if-then statements here. If you're this, if you're this, if you're this, then this is what will proceed. Typical writing for the Apostle Paul. The actions are predicated upon your identity. Actions are predicated by your identity. Becoming a Christian, we know, hopefully you know, and if you don't, I'm going to tell you how one does this. It means you've placed your faith in Christ. It means that you've repented from sin, you've confessed it, you've renounced it, and you've turned your life away from it. That is repentance, that is conversion. It is turning away from and turning towards Christ. We've asked for forgiveness from our sins. We've received the gift of eternal life. Becoming a Christian is initiated through the simple act of the sinner's prayer, which is expressing complete dependence upon Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf and in our place. Being a Christian is a bit more than that. Becoming a Christian is fairly simple, but continuing to be a Christian to me is something that the church doesn't talk an awful lot about. Being a Christian means more than just having prayed a prayer. It means that the Spirit of Christ now lives within us. It means that God is systematically renovating our lives so that they would correspond to the character and the nature of Christ. Being a Christian means we are students of Jesus. His apprentices, you've heard me use that word again and again. I can't think of a better word for our culture to hear than that we are to be apprentices of Jesus. That is, we're learning to live his pattern of life, not just a set of beliefs, but a way of behavior patterned after Jesus, a life that is the way that God intended it to be. And so this letter, this is Paul's thank you letter back to Philippi, saying to them, if you are really united with Christ then it will show up in your life, in your fellowship, through love and unity. That is his encouragement to him. So let's flesh it out a little bit of what it looks like here. Be united with the mind of Christ and the love of Christ. If we are genuinely united with Christ, then we're going to accept a totally different paradigm, a a totally different way of looking at this world than than the way most people in the world will typically look at things. The carnal man looks at life with an eye to wring out of this life every pleasure that they can possibly grab for themselves. Looking out for number one becomes the predominant worldview of the person outside of Christ. But a Christian has accepted a totally different framework. They have accepted, they have embraced the redemptive plan of God in their own life and in the world. A great inversion has taken place. No longer am I accumulating, amassing, and saturating myself with my own pleasures and desires. But instead, an inversion has taken place where I am seeking to honor and glorify God. I am giving of myself to other people and to his redemptive program. And the main thing that is produced in Christians, the distinguishing mark of their identification with Christ, is love. And we keep running into this again and again as we study Paul, don't we? The distinguishing mark being love. So what does this look like? Paul gets even more specific. He just keeps dialing down. And he tells us, don't be selfish or conceited. I just, I want to tell you something that you all already know. uh, But I'm going to tell you very plainly. Um, I am a selfish person. There was no audible gasp. I was waiting for you guys to just, what? You guys know this. I am uh, a selfish person. It is the easiest thing in my life to be that. 
I would tell you it's my default position. Um, it shows up in virtually every minute of my life. Even when I'm introducing a message, I would take a shot at my brother, Pastor Mark. Uh, it is there with me from the very beginning of the day. And I suspect that I'm not alone in this, okay? Um, thank you. The first moment of the day, the alarm goes off, and my waking thought is selfish. No kidding. I'm laying there thinking I know what this day has for us. I know what's about to happen. The kids have got to get up. We've got to get them dressed and bathed and actually in the reverse order, bathed and dressed and uh, everything else and, and ready for school and off. And, and, but when that alarm goes off, the first selfish thought is I want to stay put, right? Amy's got it. I, I'm just being honest with you. That's my first, that's one of my first thoughts of the day and it's selfish, and if I do happen to get up some point along the way and I make my way downstairs, then the selfishness emerges again when breakfast is about to be served. Because I'm looking at two boxes of cereal. There's the Lucky Charms, which I know the kids want that. And there's the Bran Flakes. And I know which one I'm supposed to be eating. And I look at them and I think, I'm eating the Charms. You know, I'm here first. And it continues. I'm just, I'm only like three minutes into my day. I already need confession. And then I go to the dishwasher. I open the dishwasher. And, and here's the challenge once again, right? Well, I just need a bowl. But the dishwasher needs to be empty. But I just need a bowl. <laughs> Am I right? So I'll pull out my bowl. And I haven't even gotten in the car and driven to work yet. Uh, and I would tell you, one of the most difficult things about marriage and family is that it gradually kills you. I don't think I'm overstating that. I think that's about right. It gradually kills you. And one of the great and glorious things about marriage and family is that it gradually kills you. Because that is what God is doing in us. Selfishness and self-centeredness are not the product of the Spirit of God. They are the remnant of our sinful nature. They are what God is removing in us. They're what God is taking out of us. They are the rough chunks that he is lopping off and continuing to refine our whole life long. God is gradually, if I can say it, killing us. He is gracious enough to give us spouses and children and co-workers and bosses and neighbors and traffic and the post office <laughs> to steadily and systematically assist in putting to death the selfish and sinful nature. Am I right? That is how it works. And so Paul says, don't be selfish or conceited. And the best way I can tell you to apply this to your life is is simply allow that self-centered person to gradually be dismantled in you. Allow it. Accept it as God's good gift. As day by day, moment through moment, we go through these selfish temptations, allow them to be put to death. Allow it. Thirdly here, Paul commands us to be humble. And he tells us a little bit how here by valuing others over yourself. What, what is prescribed here isn't just a task or two, but what he gives you is a whole lens, a whole framework for seeing everyone, all your relationships, a lens for living, a way of looking at others. And it means particularly as I interact with the body of Christ, I am consistently elevating my estimation of others. 
And instead of seeing you and thinking how I might get my advantage over the situation, I'm saying their needs are more important than my own. They're more valuable than my own, than, than I am. I need to esteem them more highly than myself. So rather than social climbing, I'm serving. Rather than talking, I'm listening. Rather than taking, I'm giving. Humility is a state of mind. It's a lens through which we see other people. It is a perspective that Christ is being formed in us. And it's not that there's just really, there's, there's no magical formula for how to attain that. Um, but I, I would tell you one thing by observation that I'm learning and continuing to learn um, that helps me in my pursuit of humility uh, has to do with slowing down. Uh, I find that few things compete with humility more in my own life than being in a hurry. Uh, when I am in a hurry, I'm less likely to see the needs of other people. When I'm in a hurry, I'm less likely to stop and to think about what those needs might be and to consider how I might respond and care to them. When I'm in a hurry, uh, I find that selfishness wins because, quite frankly, it's easier. Right? When push comes to shove in a hurry, usually I win, which means I lose. Uh, and I would tell you this, too. As I study the life of Christ, I cannot find a single instance where Jesus was in a hurry. Not once, which is amazing to me that he had three years to accomplish saving the world, and he was never in a hurry. That's remarkable. So here's the transition point. The Apostle Paul has told us, here's his just strong argument style shows up. He's already made his assertion, a Christian will follow Christ. Christian will look like Jesus. If you're united with him, you'll have the mind of Christ and you'll demonstrate the love of Christ. You won't be selfish, but you will be humble and you will be valuing others. And now he says, just this great emphasis, let's look at our example. Jesus did this. So he's made his assertion, this is what it's to be. And then he says, Jesus showed us that. Here's all the evidence I need. Jesus put it in place. Let's look at his example. Verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, the first thing I want to point out from Jesus' example is this, that he voided, this is a fancy way of saying this, he voided the prerogatives of deity. Here we're confronted with this word, kenosis. He emptied himself. How did Jesus empty himself? How does he retain his deity and yet empty himself? And this is the best way that I can think of to explain it to you. It is this long-standing theological phrase that is, I don't know if it's ever been said better than this. He set aside the independent use of his divine prerogatives. Jesus set aside the independent use of his divine prerogatives. He retains his deity, but he chose not to exercise all of it for himself. I want to illustrate this for you. Um, I brought something in this morning. This is, for those of you who have never seen one before, this is a check. <laughs> I know most of your uh, banking these days is digital. Uh, and even mobile at that, but uh, this is a check, 
And uh, some of you write a couple of these every month. Um, and on this check, uh, I have filled this out. This is actually written to Bethel Bob. And uh, this is a $100 check, and I've signed it. And I want to tell you that these resources are in my account. And I have, with my signature, authorized that they could be spent. I have the authority and the resources for this to be a good check uh, worth what it is written for. Okay? But I've done something else to this check. I've written a word across it, which is void. So if your name is Bob, sorry, it's not going to happen. Uh, I have written this, this word over here, and what it means is that even though I have the resources and even though I have the authority to make this transaction, uh, I am not going to do it. I have voided the check so that it cannot be claimed or that it cannot be utilized. And that is what Jesus did, in a sense, with his deity. He didn't set it aside so that it was not there. He didn't forfeit it so that it was no longer a part of him. He chose not to make that transaction for himself. He voided it. He didn't forfeit it completely, but he chose not to use it for his own purposes. Instead, he became, and the amazing phrase, let it ring in your mind, he became obedient to death. Obedient to death. If you're a Christian, this is the call upon your life. To become obedient to death. Not just a physical death, but a continual death to self. This is what it means to take up your cross daily. To continue to die to yourself so that you might live to Christ. And Paul doesn't just leave this in the realm of abstraction here, but he, he shows us that we're to take this posture of humility into the Christian community. We're to do this not just because it will guarantee smooth sailing in life. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. But because you are a Christian, you too will be willing to set aside your rights. And you will be willing to gradually and more and more live for the good and the needs of others. Because you possess the mind of Christ and the love of Christ. Jesus did not claim his rights. Let me flesh this out a little more. As husbands, let me be very clear. Your wife's needs are more important than yours. And that's not rhetoric, men. Your wife's needs are more important than yours. You are to value their needs more important than yours. As dads, your needs, their, your kids' needs come before your own. They need to eat the bran flakes, not the charms, because it's better for them. <laughs> As leaders, we are to use our strength, whatever strength, whatever influence, whatever resource God has given to us to elevate others, to serve them. As Christians, the posture of our life is humility, and Jesus is the supreme example. He left his rights, he voided them, and he responded to our need and became obedient to death. He prioritized our needs by dying in our place. And so I want to close the message. I told you it was going to be quick this morning. I want to close the message by saying this. Being a Christian is not just laying claim to heaven, but it is accepting daily the costly sacrifice in the name of love. Being a Christian is being obedient to death, obedient to death to ourselves. And this morning we remind ourselves of the example of Christ by 
taking the Lord's Supper again, which we do every month. I'm going to forewarn you this week. We have a mix of elements this morning. We have some of uh, our old stuff, and we have some of uh, the new stuff, which is quite crunchy, I will say, as you all know last week. And it makes a little bit of a noise. And um, you know what? We can have fun in the, in, uh, in the body of Christ and in church together and fellowship together. This is a sweet thing that we get to do to remember our Lord's sacrifice on our behalf. And we can do it with a smile on our face and joy in our hearts because it is good. So let me pray for this and then I'll ask those who have served to come forward. Gracious Father, we thank you for your, the gift of your Son that we might have life. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your death so that we might have life. And Spirit, we thank you for the gift of your continued presence and empowerment within us that we might have life. And so as we celebrate the death of our Savior, we remember the life that we have through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.